0: Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame, but if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan, I'm your host PJ Weary and I'm here today with Dr. Joshua Rasmussen, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Azusa Pacific University, and uh, also the creator of the Worldview Design YouTube channel. And we're ta- here today to talk about his book, Who Are You Really? And uh, glad to have you here today, Josh. Talk Thank to- you, I'll PJ. Take, yeah, I have it on Kindle, so it's not as pretty to look at. Thank you for, for uh, showing uh, us the, the beautiful the cover. cover, there you go.
1: Yes. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be with you. I'm excited about this conversation together, especially because I feel like we're going to be talking about a subject that might be the most important subject that any human being could possibly talk about. So, thank you. Well, this is a big questions podcast, so that makes sense.
0: Um, yeah, I think we're we're on target there. Uh, so, um, first off, just just to start with, why this book? Why? Um, who are you really?
1: Yeah. So this book is about. The nature of you and also how you could come to be. So it divides into two parts. The first part focuses on what kind of a being are you, uh, specifically you um, and generally the kind of being. And then, second, how could, what, what, if we can get a clarity about what kind of a being you are, how can something like that ever exist? And there is a mystery here about how conscious beings could exist. Uh, near the beginning of the book, I talk about the general mystery of how anything can exist. People can get startled by that. Like, why is there something? How how could there be anything, right? Maybe philosophers especially get startled and interested in that. But there's this other kind of more specific question about, you know, if there's gonna be stuff in reality, why are there the kind of things that can wonder how we got here? Why is there wondering? You know, why why is there consciousness in general? Why, Why are there people? So the subtitle of the book is A Philosopher's Investigation into the Nature and Origin of Persons. And the reason I wanted to write this book was because I saw a lot of developments, I would say exciting developments, in the analysis of consciousness by philosophers of mind and scientists working in the science of consciousness. Some interesting lines of convergence behind the scenes that are not well known in the popular sphere. And so I wanted to display some of this, this uh, progress um, in our understanding of consciousness uh, and also I have my own contribution to the field as well and so I, I have pieces in there that kind of share my latest thoughts about this and I think that if people can feel like they can get a handle on the questions and kind of be equipped to think about it for themselves they'll feel empowered to get a greater understanding of really who they are how they fit into the world so that that's why I wrote the book, is I feel like there's a lot that people can know about reality that people don't know that they can know. And I wanted the book to help people see that, discover that. So who are some of the scientists of consciousness and philosophers philosophers of mind?
0: Who are, like, their work is what's getting you excited? Who are those people?
1: Well, one, one guy is, has kind of come more into the popular sphere. His name is Donald Hoffman. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's done some very innovative work on the um, nature of perception, the science of perception. And he's got an article called Objects of Consciousness, very technical, but he shows how you can actually give an analysis of the basic aspects of matter in terms of prior states of consciousness. And he makes an argument for this from different fields of science, from evolutionary biology and the science of perception, as I mentioned, as well as from some developments in physics. So his work has kind of caught my eye. There are others. Um, I'm more familiar with the sort of analytical developments by the philosophers of mind. And so these are gonna include um, people like John Searle, uh, who's done some work on the nature of consciousness. David Chalmers is pretty well known. He's the one who coined the term the hard problem of consciousness. I like to tell my students, you know, philosophers, we came up with a name for the problem of explaining consciousness. And the problem is so hard that we named it the hard problem. You know, that's what we yeah. call it. So that's David <laughs> Chalmers. He, he's the one who coined that term. And there's a reason for that. I mean, there's a reason he calls this the hard problem of consciousness. And and we can get into that. Uh, Jaguan Kim, a philosopher of mine. Uh, there are many different philosophers of mine that, I mean, it, it's hard to name names because it sort of excludes other philosophers. And Michael Tooley has been influential in my thinking um, Alvin Plantinga has done some work in philosophy of mind. I took some courses with him uh, or a course with him. I took some courses with him, but one of them was on the philosophy of mind. And, And all these different philosophers are in a sense, analyzing common data to try to understand what this data is and how it came to be. Again, the nature of consciousness and the origin of consciousness.
0: You know, even as you started from the beginning of like, there's this thing that wonders there's this thing that thinks uh, what influence do you, do you take from uh, Descartes and what are the similarities and dissimilarities because even you start to almost talk about and then there's like there must be a personal substance right and so yeah, right. Uh, I was like I mean that sounds familiar so um, what uh what are, what are the influences and how are you similar and dissimilar to Descartes
1: I love this question because, you know, Descartes sort of known for the the argument for his existence in a sense, and like, I think, therefore I am kind of idea. And um, I think what's going on there is he's actually, see, I, I've thought about this, as I used to think, oh, yeah, you, you know, you can't deny your existence without existing, because you'd have to be there to deny your existence. So it's kind of self-defeating to deny your existence. So I kind of like that argument. But then I got to thinking, but wait, how do I know? that I'm even denying my existence? Like, how do I even know anything about me and my thoughts? Um, And kind of what I try to do in my project is start even just there, just with this very, very basic question. And I talk about this inner light that you have called introspection. This is the power by which you can be aware that you have thoughts, that you have feelings, that you can form an intention. I think it's by introspection that you can be aware that certain thoughts and feelings belong to you and they don't belong, they're not your wife. It's not that your wife is having those thoughts, you're aware of yourself having those thoughts, right? There's a self-awareness implicit in that. And this is a very, very powerful tool that's often neglected, this power of introspection. You're familiar with the sort of empiricists who emphasize the five empirical senses of seeing with your eyes, tasting, touching, smelling. Um, which one am I missing? Seeing, hearing, tasting, <laughs> tasting, smelling, right? Those five senses. And there's kind of this idea that, well, those senses give you contact with reality. Okay. Those are the primary modes to know. If you can't get to it through some kind of empirical detection, it's not even real. But what's interesting, PJ, is that you wouldn't even know that you have those five senses without introspection. Because think about it. By what sense do you sense that you have senses? It's not with your eyeballs. Your eyeballs don't see. Okay, your eyeballs see shapes and colors, structures of shapes and colors, right? So if you see a leaf, you're seeing a structure of shapes and colors. But you're not seeing your seeing of shapes and colors with your eyeballs. That's another power that you have. That's the introspective power. It's the light by which you can know that you even have those five senses. And it's a very important light because it's by this light that you can... Uh, I would say verify Descartes uh, idea there that you think you can be aware through introspection that you think and that you exist, right? You don't even have to argue for your your existence if you can just have immediate awareness of that. So that's where it's not so much that I would disagree with Descartes. I would actually kind of show how it is that you know that he's right about that. Now, people might think of Descartes particular view of the nature of persons and what I like to do in this book is kind of start from scratch, uh, not really start with existing paradigms and try to defend one of them or argue against, but just kind of start with introspection and begin to collect some data and then begin to make a case for, well, it's not even so much a case. It's, it's more of a, I almost just want to say like a painting of some aspects of you. So you feel, you think, you can intend, you have value. You can discern these things through introspection. There's you. There's also a body that you have. What's the relationship between the two? Um, now, here I do make some arguments that you can discern a distinction between your spatial aspects and your conscious aspects. And so there, there I use that tool to sort of highlight who you are or wh- what you are most fundamentally. So I, I just want to
0: make sure that I'm on the same track with you. When you, it seems like what the major difference, if I understand correctly, between you and Descartes is. That for you, you see introspection as this sense, which there's kind of this positive. We feel this, whereas, uh, and it really does govern the path that you take versus the path that Descartes takes. Descartes, like the only thing I know for sure is that I doubt, and then everything after that is like he just keeps doubting, right? And so for you, it seems like a little more like it, it steers you in a, a more positive direction. Is that is I that have fair? more
1: resources? Yeah, I like how you put that because I have a, a theory. Um, I have a chapter on perception. And this chapter is about your many modes of knowing. And so I make the argument that your senses are like windows into reality. So your vision is a sense into shapes and colors. Hearing is a sense into pitches and sounds. Uh, you can use introspection to have awareness of thoughts and feelings and intentions. I think you even have another power of reasoning to, uh, to detect logical lines of deduction from you know different statements, right? I think you have a moral sense to sense distinctions of value, right from wrong, things like this. And then um, there's a further question about the nature of the things that you're sensing. So if you're sensing a leaf, for example, is that leaf something that can exist apart from a mind or, is it, or does it only exist in a mind? Do leaves only, are leaves mind dependent? So it's interesting because I mentioned Donald Hoffman, his work is kind of pointing to the idea from physics and from uh, vision science that perhaps, and he's he's kind of humble about this, you know, he, he says, it's not that I believe these theories, it's just that, you know, yeah, it might be true, perhaps, maybe more likely than not. So he, he's a good scientist in that respect. So here's my hypothesis. But perhaps what you're actually seeing when you're seeing the the shapes and the colors of the leaf with your eyes is something that depends on a background mental space or um, mental quality um, or mental substance, if you will, or perhaps not. And so what I'm saying here is that I don't think we have to resolve these deeper questions about the nature of what we see to recognize that we see. And I think sometimes people go down a pit of skepticism because they feel like they have to resolve other questions about the nature of what we're seeing in order to recognize that they're actually seeing. And I think that we can recognize that we see things. And so that this gives us a broad sort of palette to kind of build our theory because we're seeing not just through introspection, not just that we doubt, right? Um, People sometimes associate Descartes with a kind of strong foundationalism where there's a small set of things that you can know for certain, right? This kind of small set, and then everything else gets inferred out of that. Whereas my, now this would be a difference is I I think that we actually have a broad um, set of things that we can know in kind of a basic way through our many different senses. And, you know, I don't think we just have five senses. I think we have at least 10, depending on how you divide these. And that these give us powers to fill out basic knowledge about the world.
0: Um, I had, uh, and you specifically said this. So if you don't want to go this direction, that's fine. But uh you said you didn't want to rely on previous frameworks. I had um uh Dr. Malibu on to talk about uh Kant's view of the transcendent. Mm-hmm. Are there are there connections there to this sense of introspection when you talk about like you know, the way to think about that is he talks about the mirror, the the self-reflection. Is that kind
1: of uh, a similar um sense or faculty? Yeah, absolutely. Um the way that I kind of would think about it here is that you can have an awareness of objects as they appear to you, okay? Um, and that, that's real as they appear to you. But there's this view, and this is often associated with Kant's view called phenomenal, uh, phenomenalism. And this is in my uh, chapter on perception. And according to phenomenalism, all that you're ever aware of are what you might think of as like paintings in your mind. They're not windows into a reality beyond your mind. These are just appearances um, within you, including mirrors of reflection of yourself. So you're never actually seeing outside of yourself. Um, Now I end up arguing against that view, although I think that it gets some things right. Uh, I I think there's, if I could put it this way, there's kind of a, a tension between two ideas. So one idea is that The only things that you know are mind-independent external things. Sometimes empiricists sort of lean in this direction. You know, I I can see it over there. That's a tree that exists apart from me completely. Everything that I'm seeing with my eyes exists completely apart from me. Uh, My consciousness has nothing to do with what I'm, you know, seeing. And then on the other side, it's like the only thing that you see are paintings or, you know, images or conscious uh, states of yourself. That's all you ever know, consciousness, appearances of yourself. And I think actually both of those are, are too simple. Um, I, th- I think the truth is more in between those. So I end up arguing against both of those. This is why I have a window theory of perception. On my model, I think that you can be conscious of things directly, like shapes and colors. Um, but it, it doesn't follow from your consciousness of those things that they depend on your consciousness of those things. That doesn't follow. And in fact, I think there's good reason to think that some of the things that you're conscious of don't depend on your consciousness. And an example that I give in the book is about logical relations. So for example, I think that if something is true, then it's not at the same time, not true. Okay. And I think I can actually see this connection between truth precluding not true. I can actually see that preclusion there in my mind through reason, but that preclusion doesn't depend on my seeing it, right? Like people can take math tests and logic exams, even if Josh Rasmussen is not seeing these things, even if I don't exist. Um, I I think I have good reason to believe that those things, those logical relations are there and they hold apart from my own awareness of them. And so there, I think what's happening is that I'm having an internal consciousness that's within me, of something that doesn't depend on me. So this is why I say it's a window of awareness to things that don't necessarily depend on me. And this opens up the possibility, and I just say possibility because further considerations might rock the boat a bit, but it's the possibility that even when you're aware of a leaf, the shapes and the lines of the leaf that you're conscious of don't depend on your consciousness of them, uh, that the leaf is independent of your own consciousness. But I do say that 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 depends on other considerations because when you start looking into the nature of matter itself, it does start getting a little bit weird um, how those things really even could exist apart from consciousness. So, but we can sort of bracket that, um, that weirdness (laughs) over there. But the idea is that you have these powers to to look into reality.
0: And uh, like if you go with a window versus like a mirror, for instance, um, you still have the uh, capacity, or not the capacity, you still have the. as part of it being a window, the window can get smudged, right? So like, even as you're talking about logic, yes. Um, yes. my uh, third grader, I, I homeschool him and we are working hard on just nailing down our times tables. And uh, so the other day it was six times eight and he's like, it's 46. I'm like, no,
1: it's not. <laughs> like, like, like yeah. this is mind independent. Like, that's <laughs> right. That's right. That's great actually, because that shows, I love the the smudging of the mirror or the window because there's something in your mind that's not out beyond the window. It's the mistake yeah. that's in your mind. But there's a truth that's beyond your mind that you're also yeah. able to see. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I understand, uh, I, I think I understand where, where you're going with that. Um, now you mentioned this earlier, the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, with such a, um, you know, it's a hard name to remember, but uh, the uh, very, very difficult name, but very complex. <laughs>
1: it's very hard complex. to
0: remember that name. The like, hard yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, but uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what that is, and then how that differs from what you call the constructing problem of consciousness?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, just last week, actually, I was having a conversation with Alex O'Connor from the Cosmic Skeptic, and we talked about this, the hard problem, and I mentioned to him that. I count at least seven different construction problems, where the hard problem I think of is just one of many, many different construction problems. So the construction problem, as I think about it, and now the construction problem, that, that's my term. That's a term that I coined in my work um, to kind of organize other problems as well. But the general construction problem is just the, the general problem of seeing how to construct a conscious being by any means. You know, like, so I've got some Legos here in my hand, and there's a question about like, could we put these Legos together so that when we put them together, in a certain way, we've constructed a conscious being that's having its own private experiences and hopes and dreams, and it's rotating images of purple dragons in its mind. You know, it's not that the building blocks are purple, Right, the, the building blocks have their own colors, but, but, but once you get them organized in the right way, you construct a conscious being that can have a visual imagination and a hope that it not be destroyed, okay? That's the general construction problem. And then this general problem has, like the reason why this is a problem is because there are many specific problems with constructing conscious beings. There's the hard problem, I'm gonna say a bit more about that. Um, there's a binding problem of how you get a bunch of different things to be unified into a single thing. There's a binding problem of consciousness. There's a a causal exclusion problem. I mentioned, I think I mentioned Jaguan Kim, a philosopher who's championing um, this particular challenge, which has to do with how you as a conscious being could actually do something in the world without your actions being causally excluded by more fundamental microphysical things, um, particles, atoms, fields like this. Um, There's an identity problem of what explains why you are specifically you and not a duplicate of yourself. You know, imagine you swap all your atoms out for my atoms and your original atoms get arranged in the same way as your original body. So now you have a duplicate of yourself, but yet you are still specifically you over there and not over where your duplicate is at. So there are deep puzzles and questions about how that works Um, and so on. There, There are other problems and. And, and, and these are problems for everybody. I mean it, everybody faces these problems. In, in my book, I talk about, you know, if, if you believe in God, you, you don't just roll away the problem just because you believe in God, because if you believe in God, presumably, you think that God is at least a possible being. If you think He's an actual being, he's got to be a possible being. And if you think He's a possible being, that means that God doesn't have impossible powers. You know, If, if he's a possible being, he doesn't have impossible powers. And so if it's impossible to make square circles, for example, uh, circles that are not circles. If that's impossible, then not even God could do that. If it's impossible to take a bowling ball and grow a dragon out of that, if that's just impossibility, the nature of the bowling ball won't do that, then not even God could do that. So I actually spend some time in the book arguing that there are some deep, deep constraints about how conscious beings could possibly emerge and this is a puzzle for everybody, including myself. And, um, and, and, and there are certain theories where, yeah, like not even God could turn a rock into a conscious being. Uh, and I mean that sincerely. I think that's as impossible as making square circles because of those particular problems. Um, so just to kind of focus in on the hard problem just a little bit, without going into too much detail on all the other problems, just to kind of focus in on this. This is a problem of seeing how you can explain the emergence of qualitative states of consciousness, like the smell of coffee or the experience of listening to a symphony. How you can explain the the, the emergence of these things purely in terms of the vocabulary of physics, Uh, talking about the positions of particles moving and hitting each other. Um, Some people say, well, you just need more complexity. You need enough particles, right? But we have this kind of intuition that Sometimes complexity is it won't work if it's the wrong category. You know, it's it's like, how complex does a number have to be in order for that number to be a bowling ball? It's like, no, no, complexity there doesn't make a difference. If you have mental images, I was think I was thinking about this actually today. I was with my kids at the park and I was lo and behold, I was thinking about consciousness with them. <laughs> I mean, they were running around, but I was like thinking about So I was like thinking about um this this material problem of how how can you get consciousness with the wrong material? And one way of kind of illustrating this is just coming up with examples where kind of everybody would agree, you can't build a conscious being out of that material. And I was thinking about the materials within consciousness. So like materials, like while you're dreaming, you have a, a scene of let's say some mountains and imagine that in your dream, the scene of mountains kind of explodes into little like particles in your dream, right? And then you could ask yourself well could those little dream particles have images of purple dragons could those fairy particles be conscious not could they be in your consciousness could they have their own consciousness could they turn into a conscious being and then hope that you don't wake up because then they'll go away right is that possible and i would say that we actually have a power through insight into the nature of these things to see that no that that's not possible Okay. Now the hard problem is saying something a little bit more modest. What it's saying is that um, we don't really see how to explain. We, we don't, we don't have, we don't have a way of seeing how it is possible um, just by understanding the nature of the, the items and then just anal- and then organizing them in certain ways. Okay. Now here I was talking about the brain imagery, but now let's shift to particles of sand. You know, can you take some particles of sand, get the wind to blow in just the right way, and the particles enter into a a formation that is simulating a nervous system, okay, or a brain, like a little brain, right? And how how do we know? You know, maybe that that happens, right? But the idea is that there's no description of uh, of the positions of those particles, of the motions of the particles, of the number of particles, that from the knowledge of that description, you can just see that, oh, those particles would have private conscious experiences. Um, I think you can actually, I kind of make the argument, you can actually see that they can't. You actually have a a way of seeing that's the wrong material. But the hard problem is saying that, at least we can't see that, that they would be conscious. And the reason why this is relevant is because it provides a motivation for a number of philosophers to try to kind of minimize mystery beyond we don't want to multiply mystery beyond necessity so if you can't really see how you can derive the one from the other then one way that you could go is just say hey you know maybe the consciousness is deeper in to reality it doesn't emerge out of these things because if it did then you have this explanatory gap problem you can't explain you can't see how the particles in the wind or in a brain or whatever would start having feelings um, It's not an argument from ignorance. It's an argument from the knowledge that we have consciousness together with wanting to not multiply mysteries beyond necessity. So we have consciousness. There's no need to assume. This this is a little bit difficult actually to articulate because for some, the story that consciousness emerges later out of brains is, is almost just taken for granted. So that for me to even tell this alternative story um can be it can sound a little bit confusing um but i want to just say like there's another paradigm it's like you can just like turn the airplane around you know just flip the airplane around there's like another way of explaining all of reality where you take what's known would be conscious beings consciousness and the contents within consciousness You, you take what's known and then instead of explaining that in terms of posits that aren't known to exist, you explain the physical things that are known to exist in terms of categories that are also known to exist. So you're explaining the known in terms of the known. And so you have a framework where you have consciousness being fundamental, and then the physical stuff gets explained in terms of that. And there are different ways of fleshing this out, but um, this would be one way of responding to the hard problem. Of course, it's, it is not the only way, um, but it is sort of one kind of solution, and it's why a number of philosophers care about that problem.
0: Um, Questions, you, comments? Push yes, yeah. Well, when you say um, when, when you say it doesn't, uh, we don't need to multiply mysteries. You doesn't uh, you talk about a personal substance? Um, is that something that we are uh in in your explanation is that just what consciousness is is the mental substance or the personal substance or is that something you're positing a- alongside it good Does question. That make I sense? Love this question
1: yeah absolutely so i think of the substance as the thing that has the consciousness and in my book on the self i talk about these different arrows that point to this thing that i think you can actually also know in addition to your consciousness which is yourself having that consciousness. Um, One of the arrows is the arrow of, I call this uh, the perspective arrow. So um, there's a question about, I I first heard this question when I was in grad grad, uh, school. And one of my professors asked, how do you know which body in this room is your body? It's kind of like, it feels like a silly question. You know, like only a philosopher would ask this, like, how do you know which body is yours? (laughs) Well, it's like, okay, well, how do I know? You know? So it's like, well, it looks like this is my body over here. Well, how do you know that's the one? And one answer is, well, it's because you can control that body. Okay, fair enough, yeah. So the body that's yours is the one that you can control. But how do you know which body you're controlling? Here's a kind of a deeper answer. It's because I can be aware that there are certain bodily motions, so here my fingers are moving, in response to certain mental states. So I'm intending to move my fingers and then my fingers move. Okay, so far so good. But now, you know, as a philosopher would, we can press the question, right? How do you know which mental states in the room are your mental states? There are a lot of mental states in the room. How do you know which ones are yours? You, you need to be able to know which mental states are yours in order to be able to know that it's your mental states correlated with these bodily motions, right? Because it otherwise, it's somebody else's mental states, and then you're not in control of your body. And this is a very like deep question, but I think it points to a power to know something very, very familiar. It's so familiar. You, you talk about the windows of awareness. It's almost like we look through the windows and we don't see the window itself. It's so familiar that we look past it. But it, it, I would say it's self-awareness. So you can be aware, and I talk about David Hume. He had a kind of skeptical argument with respect to self-awareness, but I diagnose Uh, his argument. And I end up myself making the argument that uh, his own considerations actually point to this power of self-awareness that's implicit in your awareness of mental states belonging to you. So here's my answer then to how you know which body in the room is yours. It's because you have a power of self-awareness, which gives you a power to be aware of which mental states are yours, which gives you a power to be aware of which body you're controlling which allows you to know which body is yours. So here's kind of an argument. You can know which body in the room is yours. You couldn't know which body in the room is yours unless you had the power of self-awareness. Therefore, you have the power of self-awareness. Um, so this goes to your question, you know, are you positing the personal substance in addition to the consciousness? And I would say it's, it doesn't have to be a posit. It can, it can be, it can be. I, I had long conversations in graduate school with the philosopher about this. Because he was saying, I do think I exist, but I, I I think that I have to posit my existence. All right. Well, as long as you've arrived at your existence somehow, (laughs) then great, we can build from there. Um, But I think you also have a power to be directly, consciously acquainted with your own self, having thoughts and feelings, and so that would be a personal substance. You you can call it a personal substance. So notice, I'm not positing souls outside of your consciousness. Uh, that, that's why I kind of hesitate to even use the word soul. I, I use the word self, and I claim that you can be self-aware. Even while you're dreaming, even while you're not aware of your body, even while you're not aware of your brain, you don't have to be aware of your brain to be self-aware, which already indicates that the self is something else um, that you can know immediately. So I don't think that's a positive. And so I do think that if you build your worldview on what you can know, and of course, this is sort of up to each person to kind of check for themselves. You know, I mean, don't take, don't take my analysis. You know, just kind of think, you know, what do I know from my own perspective? Then I think you can actually, in a way, have a sim- simplified um, and, and explanatorily powerful worldview if you make use of conscious beings as, um, how do I want to say this? Kind of building blocks for analyzing other things. Or
0: you make them primary. Right. That's the, uh, in
1: the, actually, that was
0: my next question. Perfect segue. Uh, Thank you for doing that. No, um, (laughs) the, at the end, uh, in the, in the conclusion you give that your conclusion is that persons are primary and you give three different ways that they are primary the, through the order of nature, the order of knowledge and the order of value. Do you mind talking about what, uh, why those, why those conclusions are important? and uh, just talk us through those conclusions in general, just like those three different primary in those three different orders. Like, first of all, what are those orders? Cause it's like order of nature. It's like, all right, as a, you know, is that, it sounds like an Amazon thing, you know, like I ordered some nature, you know, it's coming in like right. my new shampoo yeah. or something. Sorry, couldn't right, yeah. resist. <laughs> nature, no, I love it, yeah.
1: But it would be without the E though, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, just to sort of frame this. Now, these are conclusions. At the at the end of a, kind of a long journey, um, going through what I call the cave of consciousness, where we kind of look at the different aspects of you and then use reason to analyze those aspects. So we collect observations. We use a kind of scientific method to collect observations. and We use reason. We, we work through these different construction problems. And then after all of that, I arrive at these conclusions. And these conclusions, yeah, I like how you said that um, it has to do with the primacy of of personal beings or personal reality. Um, People are primary. And kind of a theme of the book is that we are deeper in to reality than many of us maybe realize, even deeper in than I thought. Okay, to be honest, because when I started this project, I was kind of leaning on a lot of the courses I had taken in graduate school and some of the publications I had contributed since then and, and some works that I had read. But I really wanted to do a deep dive, so I was kind of reading a whole wave of recent work in in science as as well as philosophy, and then just taking long walks and trying to think about it. And so in the course of writing the book, I actually came away thinking, oh, it's not just that consciousness is deeper in than I thought. Like, I'm deeper in. Uh, In order for me to move my body, I have to be able to not be a puppet of particles that are deeper and more fundamental than I am. It's like, I think I used to kind of have this idea that, well, particles, you know, they existed before I existed. They're more fundamental than me. They build up a brain and then somehow I exist sort of in connection with that brain. It's, it's a bit puzzling how that works. But that I came away thinking that, no, actually in order for me to affect my brain, and I think that causation is two ways. So my brain affects me and I affect my brain in order for that to work. I have to, in a way, be primary to even the motions of the molecules. And and, and we could take this all the way to the quantum field. There's a way in which by intending to form a thought, to send a love letter to a friend or whatever, these intentions that I'm forming create these ripples in the quantum field, which affect particles in my brain and propagate out into visible motions. So I'm deeper in um, than the than these physical things that we see and so i say there's the primacy of nature um, there and i'm thinking of that in terms of um kind of like what exists um so my existence is prior than the existence my existence and who i am my identity is not derived out of atoms Um, one of the reasons and i have to just kind of sketch this because it it takes work to really draw this out in, in detail but one of the reasons that i say that i'm prior to my identity is prior to the atoms is that it's the um, I, that problem of what happens if my atoms get swapped out with replacement atoms but I'm still over here I'm not going with my original atoms but if my original atoms carry my identity then I should go wherever those original atoms go okay now if you say well it's not just The atoms that carry my identity is the atoms plus their arrangement. Sometimes people suggest this. It's like once the atoms are arranged in a certain way, okay, well then take those original atoms and arrange them into the brain that I had when I was a child, okay? Or even the brain that I have right now, get them into a duplicate copy of my current brain. Do I have a first person conscious awareness now of being over there? Do I like suddenly shift over there? I mean, because it seems like I am aware of myself even as atoms are going in and out. And it doesn't seem like I'm going with those atoms. And so if those atoms get arranged in the same way, now we have the same atoms in the same arrangement, and yet I'm not over there. My identity was not tied to those atoms or their arrangement. And so this is kind of part of a a larger analysis that I think points to who you are most fundamentally is not derived and determined by mindless bits of reality. so you're deeper in, you're, you're primary um, to, the, to the mindless. The mindless comes out of the mind, actually. Um, this is kind of a weird way of talking about it, but if you think about it, your thoughts and your feelings, they don't have their own minds, so they're mindless. Okay, so there's a way, do, you know what I mean? It's not that they don't come from yeah. a mind, it's that they, they don't have, they're mindless in the sense, they're mindless in the way that a sandcastle is mindless. The sandcastle, Maybe it was formed by a mind, putting the particles into the form of a sandcastle, but the sandcastle doesn't have its own mind. So in that sense, the sandcastle is mindless. My thoughts in that sense don't have their own mind. My feelings don't have, the mental images don't have their own mind. So I would say all the mindless things, those those come after the mental, the, the mental fabric of reality is prior, primary to the mindless aspects of reality. So that's the order of nature. Um, The order of value is sort of similar that your value is not derived from mindless things. Have a whole chapter about your value not being able to be defined in terms of the changing states of matter. Like you have a a firm value that I argue you can be actually be aware of your value. You can be aware of your own inner worth. Um, This is an evidence of your, I would say evidence that you can be aware of your value is that if somebody disrespects you, you don't like that. Because they're saying something against something that you actually intuitively know, uh, you know, that you have that value. I had a story that I wrote into a draft of the book, but I ended up taking it out just for efficiency. Um, I couldn't put everything in there. But the story was back when I was doing some substitute teaching and I was teaching a class with some students and they were in sixth grade. And two students during the teaching just started getting upset at each other, started fighting hitting each other. Now I'm the substitute. So I'm supposed <laughs> to be, you know, managing the situation. And the guy who is kind of more of the aggressor, who is like really punching the other guy, uh, I came to them and kind of, you know, broke them apart and, and then talked to them. And I looked first at the person who is punching the kind of the aggressor. And I told him, I, I said, I, I just felt such compassion. I, and he looked scared like he's going to get in trouble. I didn't even tell the teacher. I just didn't. I just I'm, I was probably supposed to, but I didn't. Um, but I, I looked at him. I said, I understand. I know why you punched him. It's because you have a knowledge of your value. You, you actually have self-respect. You know who you are. You, you, and this guy was attacking and going against your value. And so you're going against that. And And so after I said that to him, I think he must have felt validated and known. He put out his hand to the other kid and and apologized, which I was just like very happy about that. Right. Um, And I saw that kid another time when I was teaching and and we definitely formed a bond over that. But I'll never forget that because it illustrates to me that even when we're sort of fighting other people because we feel disrespected, it's because we actually have a knowledge inside that we have value. We have worth. And that this value doesn't depend on the color of your nose. Okay. You expect that, I'm going to say the color of your skin. Well, it doesn't depend on any color. Like we intuitively know that if somebody takes some white chalk and just wipes it on your cheek, you know, you don't lose your value. And I draw this out because it takes a little bit of kind of analytical surgery to sort of trace these lines to the logical implications. Like, okay, so. If I change shape, will I suddenly no longer have that intrinsic worth? No. It doesn't depend on shape. What does it depend on? Right? So this is the kind of the value challenge. Like what what does your value depend on? And I end up making an argument. It doesn't depend on anything in the spatial material world at all. You're prior, you're deeper in. Your value is deeper in. There's no way of just arranging spatial things to um, take away your value or to give you more value.
0: Um, one, I'm really looking forward to your upcoming book, uh, Joshua Rasmussen, uh, Confessions of a Substitute
1: Teacher. But um, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. yeah, that's but, right. Never did tell that teacher. Somebody probably listened to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Going to report this. Well, it was years um, and years ago. So you <laughs> right. Right.
0: Yeah. 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 Like um, for legal purposes, this story never happened. No. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh, names and dates have been changed to uh, protect the innocent. Uh, um, So when you talk about this value um, and it's not based on your molecules arrangement, one, this does sound like it's uh, bad news for gym bros, but uh, as we kind of look at this, uh, it does seem like people do attach the, the, you're talking about this awareness of uh, of inward awareness of value, but that doesn't seem to be, um, and I'm going to get the, Is it incorrigible in the same? I I can't remember the, the, you know, if you look at the verification hypothesis, you know, they talk about like, there's certain types of statements that like, are just like very obvious, like two plus two equals four. Yeah.
1: You can't doubt self-worth.
0: Yeah. yeah, Self-worth is definitely doubtable and it can be, and people definitely arrange like their self-worth can be based
1: on the arrangement of their molecules. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah their sense of their self-worth, their, their feeling that they have self-worth because of external voices, right? I mean, we come up with these standards, like you only have value if you win this race. And I mean, I think we kind of intuitively understand that, no, it's not really that you have to win this race, but we come up with these external measures, right? Um, and let me just say that even, even though I do think you can have these powers of knowledge that are direct, you can get knowledge, I don't think that, um, therefore, you can't have doubts about it. Uh, In fact, I mean, I wouldn't write this book if if there were no doubts about the things I'm talking about. I actually think everything can be doubted. I think you can doubt your own existence. So, you know, even as far as like Descartes goes, like, I doubt, therefore, you know, I, I exist. No, I think you can doubt your own existence because there are ways in which obstacles can roll in. To, there's two ways this happens, I think. So one one is that you actually aren't really paying attention to the things that you can know. So, for example, maybe there's a mathematical proof of something. And it takes some time to trace those lines to the conclusion. It's not easy to know. Um, there's no blame about it. It's just it takes some time. You, you're not just born like knowing all of these things. And so you actually have to apply your conscious attention to notice these things. I think this is true with... Noticing your own self, even noticing your own noticing, I think takes a bit of work. Um, it's, you don't, you're not just born noticing, you're noticing. That takes some work, um, noticing your consciousness. So that that's the first kind of barrier that I think can roll into the knowledge of your self-worth is that, you know, it takes a certain amount of maybe life experience or, or paying attention to, okay, what is going on? Like, why am I feeling mad? Like, what's the root reason? You know, why do I want to win? Like, what does winning mean to me? Why do I want these shapes? You know, why do I want that external approval? And then you sort of trace those whys to something deeper and something core. And then you can have this awareness. Oh, there I am. I have value. That's why I don't want to be destroyed. Because there's something about me that is worth something. Okay. Now, maybe it's actually in a weird way easier to, to do this for others. Like that person has value that four-year-old over there who's lost her parents and nobody even knows who she is. It's not that she doesn't have value now because nobody values her. You see her over there and you think, you know what, she has value. And she had value even before I saw her, even before I I knew her situation. She herself, let's say, doesn't know that she has value. She thinks she's trash. She just left out to the wind. But intuitively, I think we understand there's something special over there. There's value there. so that, that's the first thing is it takes certain awareness and, and that awareness can be doubted. The second, I think, reason for doubts has to do with, I think so much about this because I think people can actually be acquainted with something and still doubt it because external voices or other reasons are louder. I had this experience when I was looking for the broom, our broom to sweep our house and I couldn't find our broom. And so if I can't find something, you know, What what am I going to do? If I can't find something, I'm going to ask my wife. Rachel, where's the broom? Now, before she could respond, my eyes saw the broom between my refrigerator and a wall in a kind of like dark space. So I saw the broom. It was there in my mind. And she said, the broom's outside. I believed her. I went outside. My body was like programmed to go outside. Even while I, I, I saw the broom inside. I went outside. I verified it wasn't out there. I went back in (laughs) and I pulled it out of the place that I already saw it. And I I love that example because um, it's a real example. Like I knew that I saw it, but I didn't believe what I was seeing because of my wife, the power of her authority. And I think it illustrates something that is so common actually um, on a deeper level, which is that oftentimes we'll just inherit belief systems. We'll have maybe people in reputable positions, maybe a pastor or a scientist that we look up to, and they carry more authority in, over our mind than our own direct conscious awareness. Like you're directly consciously aware that you have thoughts, but you can't believe it because you've been reading these scientists and philosophers who are eliminativists, who say we don't have thoughts because of neuroscience and all this stuff. And you're like, yeah, I guess we probably, have you know, I'm not sure if I can believe that I have thoughts now, right? Even though you're directly consciously aware of them, um, so I think that's possible. I, I think it is possible to be directly aware of something and then, and then ha- still doubt it. And that's that's why I think it's important to pay attention to kind of what you're aware of and work through that. Yeah, go ahead.
0: So, it, so it we, the, we are persons are primary in uh, the order of value, and but that is smudgeable to just. Continue to belabor this metaphor that uh, you know that we set up.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's smudgeable in the same way that getting the addition wrong, you know, is smudgeable, right? Right. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you you and can then, you can fail to believe something that's true. That is possible.
0: And that kind of yeah. takes us to that last one, which is the order of knowledge, right? Which is uh, yes.
1: So, talk me through that uh, if you if you don't mind. So this is so interesting to me because I think sometimes people flip the truth um, 180 degrees. And I used the metaphor of the airplane before because I heard that apparently it used to be that airplanes would sometimes get upside down and there'd be just one pilot and they would think the airplane was right side up. And so they would pull up and crash the plane. And you can imagine scenarios like this. You know, imagine the plane comes over a lake and you can see it's like, the lake is reflecting the sky. You look the other way, there's the sky. It's like perfect symmetry. And I'm not even saying this happened over lakes. Uh, I mean, this has happened in, in various places. You get the plane upside down, but you think it's right side up. Yeah. And so I've noticed that I think worldview is like this. I think sometimes we get our worldview upside down. And we're so used to that. We interpret everything in terms of that, that it feels right side up, but the truth is exactly the opposite. And I think knowledge is like this. So I think that your knowledge, most fundamentally, the clearest things that you can know are the things that are within your own direct consciousness. Um, So like you can know that you, if you had coffee this morning from an immediate experience that you have, even while there's no scientific investigation or literature on your experience, that doesn't mean that, well, now it's just your opinion and it's doubt, you know, you should doubt that or something. The scientific consensus on a topic is less sure, I think. And here's why. It's because the way that scientists arrive at a consensus is by individual people having firsthand experiences. And those firsthand experiences are the sources of the knowledge. And then the scientists can interpret those, give an inference, write it in a paper, and you're reading the paper, and there's inferences that you have to make that are not 100% certain. You have to make the inference that, you know, this paper was actually written by who claimed to have written it. You have to make the inference that, in fact, your experience of the paper is not just in a hallucination, that you're not just dreaming, right? So you've got these inferences. and so let me be careful here. I'm not saying you can't have scientific knowledge or that you can't be reasonably sure of things that you know scientists are giving us. I think you can, absolutely. But I think sometimes we disempower ourselves because we actually think that the most certain things are things that are like external to our conscious awareness that have to be reported to us by people in perceived authority. And I, I really want to kind of flip that around for people and help people to see that All authoritative statements are themselves either not based in reality, or if they are based in reality, they're based in somebody's firsthand conscious experience. You know, like somebody experiences seeing a bird in the sky and then reports it to a friend, and then the friend knows about that, right, through that. So it's those firsthand conscious experiences that are the primary sources of knowledge. And you are one of the people, you're one of the beings. So I I like to tell my students like, you are carving a unique path of experience that you know about, and nobody else knows that experience firsthand, only you do. And that's actually one of the the things that you carry, uh, one of the things that are uh, valuable is that you have treasures of understanding of things that are unique to you. And just because other people don't know about it and hasn't been approved by the scientists doesn't mean you don't actually know through firsthand direct experience, you do know. So that's that's why I say um, persons are primary in the order of knowledge. Knowledge starts with individual persons and the knowledge of persons, the knowledge of ourselves is prior to the knowledge of um, impersonal things. Um, you know, We know persons through firsthand experience of ourselves and then the existence of like rocks and trees, those things out there that aren't persons, uh, sure they're real, but I mean, I'm just saying that the knowledge of them is even less certain than the knowledge of yourself. But I think sometimes people flip that. They think, oh, we know the material world. That's what we know. And it's a spooky religious posit that in addition to the material world, there are these things like, kind of like what you were saying, personal substances you have to posit in addition. Isn't that what you don't know? You don't know that there's a personal substance. That's what you have to posit. And I would say, no, it's exactly the opposite. If there's anything you know with perfect clarity, it's that, or at least can know, is that there are personal substances. There's, there's, you don't have to call it a substance, but there's personal beings. There's you. There's persons. Um, yeah. There's persons. Yes. Absolutely. So yeah. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Even, you know, and um, I've probably said it too many times in this podcast, but I, I just love it so much. As you're talking about the plane uh, example, uh, it reminds me of uh, uh, Wittgenstein defining philosophy as getting the fly out of the glass bottle, which really, yeah. uh, I've actually heard people talk about it as being like very obscure. And to me, it made immediate sense because I hate it when I get a, uh, mosquito or bee in my car and you can't, you, and it's stuck on the I windshield, know. right? It's like, and no. you can't, and you're just like, look for the, both our sakes, please go out the window. And, um, and so there, there's this constant, like, uh, we think we're there, we think we have it, but it, it's, it's understanding that this is actually a dead end. Um, or, well, in the plain example, uh, dead end is probably a little too appropriate, but, um, the, uh, kind of, as we wrap up here, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, what, what is one thing you would leave, uh, our audience thinking about, or what's one thing you would recommend they do this week? after listening to this episode?
1: I think sometimes we we take for granted the things that are the most familiar. Um, you know, you wake up in a bed and like, there you are, you. You are there. That's a very familiar sort of piece of reality right there, you. Um, you know, but we think about other things. We think about, okay, we got to get to work, get to school, got to take care of the lawn, got to do this, that, that. There's all these things sort of external to ourselves. You know, we're looking out into the world through the window of ourselves and we look past our very selves. And maybe if there is one thing to sort of do is to just take some time in the week and contemplate your, your own reality. Um, you can actually make some observations. Like, what are you thinking? What do you... Feeling. What are some aspects of your thoughts? Can you notice if you focus in on a feeling, if that feeling has colors? Well, oh, it doesn't have colors. Okay, what does that imply? Uh, how, how, how could a colorless feeling relate to gray matter in your brain? And be careful not to rush to, oh, well, we know what the science is. Just take some time to just focus in because the scientific data is open to interpretation. And I think that sometimes people rush to interpretations that leave out very crucial first-person data, the data that you can have from your own first-person perspective. And it was, I mean, honestly, like today I was with my kids in the park there running around and I was just doing this very thing again, even after having written this book um, and just collecting some new data, actually, that I hadn't really gotten quite so clear. I was like focusing on the images in my mind and thinking about how those images could have their own images. Like, could a purple image have a red image in its mind? How would that work? And I'm drawing this out and I'm making connections between brain states. And well, what are brain states? Are they things in space? Are the things in my images in space? They seem to have spatial, if I'm dreaming of a spatial thing, like, what is that? So you can do that. Like you can actually pay attention to yourself, pay attention to the familiar, and then ask yourself this question, how could something like me exist? And you might be sort of startled by the challenge the challenge of answering that question. Like no matter what your worldview is, uh, whether you think that it's like mindless bits that produce everything else, or you think that there's some kind of supreme mind at the base of reality, either way, I mean, how, how could God make you? That, that's going to lead you somewhere probably into a wilderness that isn't protected by fences of orthodoxy, either in religion or science. You're going to just see, oh, this is, there's something uncharted over here. Hmm. Um, and the other thing I think you'll come away with doing this, just paying attention to the familiar, is, I, I hope this is the case, is an awareness of your own significance. Uh, an awareness of the profoundness of your existence, that you're included within reality. And there's something very profound about that. That would be kind of a take-home message of the book is that if whatever you think, whatever perspective you come from, that you are a profound piece of reality. And I think the significance of your, your existence just cannot be over uh, overexpressed or overstated.
0: What an encouraging way to end. Uh... Uh, Dr. Rasmussen, uh, Joshua, wonderful having you on today. Thank you. Thank you.